Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au. Let's be upfront about being a young woman with breast cancer. Every day, two women aged between 20 and 39 will be diagnosed with breast cancer. The issues facing younger women diagnosed can be significantly different to the issues affecting older women. They're faced with big questions about fertility, career, relationships and finances. Today, we're joined by Dimity Paul, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 31. Welcome, Dimity. Hi. Thanks for having me. Young, and not only young at 31, you had known that you had the BRCA gene mutation long before that. Yes, I found out when I was 21. Um, My mother had breast cancer three times when I was growing up. So I remember the years I was at school, not how old I was, but it was grade two, grade four, year nine. And there was a very different experience of being a kid with a parent with cancer when you're younger, Mm -hmm. a little bit less connected but when I was in year nine I sat next to her during the chemos I remember being at Box Hill Hospital and holding the vomit bucket for her um, because I wanted to be there and I I just had that thing where you want to look after your parent. Um, That's a big thing for what a 15 year old? Yeah but I guess I don't know where I guess my parents had always been quite sick when I was growing up so medical stuff I was pretty used to I had sister who was a midwife and bought home water birthing videos when I was 12 so I kind of you know not desensitized but I was cool with medical stuff but clearly you got on the front foot and decided to be tested yeah and I think it was about taking control so obviously we didn't really know about BRCA in the 90s when my mum went through most of her cancers um and I'm not a control freak, but I like to plan. I'm very career driven and I wanted to know what I needed to do to either prevent or prepare or uh, make sure I could do everything I could do to um, put myself in the best setting health-wise. Okay, so once you knew that you had the gene mutation, you started having yearly MRIs. Not straight away. So the interesting thing is they told you when you were 21, all the support materials then were pretty much all about women in their 40s and 50s with breast cancer. And I think we've had a lot of change since then. And they told me we couldn't really do anything till you're 27. So I had this big lump of info dumped to me at 21 with the best information of maybe, have you thought about having kids? And I had a boyfriend at the time and look, let's just say he didn't deal with the information very well as most 20 year old, one year old boys don't. Um, funnily enough, we're not together anymore. <laughs> um, so it was not, that was not a time to having, are you having children? Maybe you should have your breasts removed and all that kind of thing. So that was big info with not much to be able to deal with. So weirdly, being the control freak who wanted to know it all, I found it out but then parked it mm-hmm. until I knew I had to get my testing started and then I re-engaged back when I was 27. Okay, so that's when you started the yearly MRI. Correct. And it was at the age of 31 that they found the tiniest cancer. Itsy bitsy. Um, so 
the year before I'd had a PASH come up, which is an irregularity but not cancerous, um, and I'd had a little copper clip put in that one spot. So when I went back for my MRI at 31 and it came back with an abnormality, I didn't think twice about it because the last biopsy I'd had came up clear. So I was pretty chill, I was pretty cool. Um, and so I went back for my test results and it's never a good sign when they ask, have you got anyone with you? Yeah. <laughs> so Bad I, news was coming. Yeah, bad news was coming. But I still hadn't kind of twigged. But then, you know, when you got told, I sort of went... You almost gobsmacked. So you still, even though you thought you were planned and mentally prepared because it had been in your family yeah. and you'd been tested and, yeah. like you said, you parked it, Yeah. when it actually becomes your reality, it was still a shock. Yeah, I was just like, okay, this is... This is a bit shit, actually. And I remember it ticking over my head. I'd, I'd just had quite an awful experience in a workplace which had involved me losing my job and, and I'd just sort of got to the point um, about 18 months later where I felt like I'd got my life back together and I was like, oh, you're going to be kidding me. Yeah. Of course it's happening now, just when I feel like I'm, I've pulled it back together. So and I remember going, okay, right, what is, what, what is it? What does it mean? And then all the, the words, the medical words, like grade three and, um, you know, triple negative and all these things that you don't know what any of it means is given to you. And I'm pretty sure they explain it to you, but you only hear so much at that point. Yeah, everything becomes a blur. Yes. And particularly, as we know, in young women, it's triple negative that they, they usually get, which is very aggressive. Yeah. It and was less than a little, centimetre. But it was stage three. So yeah. it was... Yeah. And we found out later um, that it had also spread to a node as well. But we can talk all about sentinel node biopsies later <laughs> if you want. <laughs> so the immediate course of action then was to firstly get your head around it and then what action did you take? Well, um, again, it was a bit weird. You're in shock. My first comment was, but I have a holiday planned next week. <laughs> and so weirdly they went, that's fine, go on your holiday, deal with the news and come back. So I did that, but I spent most of the time on the holiday to fertility people ringing me and doctors and my GP getting a letter and finding out and calling me. And, um, and then we came back from that holiday and then it was the week of appointments. I think we were um, in at Peter Mac or at the women's every day, all day, from the Monday to the Thursday when I had my first surgery. Okay, so a double mastectomy? No, not straight away. So the first thing I had was a lumpectomy and a sentinel node biopsy. Um, so I always laugh about the sentinel node biopsy because nothing can really quite prepare you for the pain of a sentinel node biopsy. And I don't mean that in kind of like a scary way because um, it, it's certainly not by me, any means the scariest thing you face, but it's probably the most underrated or less, less talked about procedure. They literally, you know, stick a needle in your nipple and then pop you in out of a CT scan. And I remember thinking... Brown, Hello. No, yeah, no, no one talks about that. Hello. Yeah. yeah. And I remember my surgeon, God bless her, who was lovely but was very surgeon-y, um, said, yeah, I hear they're quite painful and then kept wheeling me on. I was like, yep, yeah, it was actually. Yep, thanks for that. So that was the first step. I, When I was speaking to them in that whirlwind week, um, because I'd known about my gene risk and I'd got this cancer, I was like, I want to go straight to double mastectomy, just take them off. But because they weren't sure if it was spread, uh, if had if it had spread... 
um, and they weren't sure if I was going to have chemo, they didn't want to do the double mastectomy straight away because you've got to heal before you start chemo and so they wanted to be able to keep that window open to start chemo and have time to do fertility treatment. Um, if that was what I needed to do. So that's one of the major issues that face young women with breast cancer is fertility. Mm. Were you even aware that that was going to be something that you would need to consider or are you glad that you were provided the information? I think you'd probably get to it at a later stage. I think you're sort of thinking about all the survival things initially. So at, at, at Peter Mac, again, I cannot speak more highly for them and the nurses, and I had my familiar cancer nurse as well, who I'd known for 10 years, helping me through that initial process, and my breast cancer nurse. And they just organised all of that. So we're sending you across to the women's and um, you're going to have a meeting about, you know, options if you do have chemo just to get the ball rolling, but... You, know, you may not need chemo, so you may not need it. So all of that was done. Um, but, you know, you, I've heard stories about friends um, who have friends in regional areas who get told fertility options aren't there. So I really think there's a massive split between country and city or cancer specialist hospital or perhaps general hospital in um, what treatments are provided and what information is provided. So in your case, you were well informed. Very lucky. And you were able to take advantage Absolutely. of the fertility treatment yep. and have that peace of mind, regardless yep. of whether you're going to end up having chemo or not, Yeah. that that was one box ticked. So it was sort of getting the information so we we're ready to go if we needed to make that. Mm -hmm. It's good getting information in little bits because there's so much information flying around at this time. Okay, so fertility was addressed and then so you've had chemo. Yeah, so we got the results back from the sentinel node biopsy which said it had spread and at that point then you toddle off and go do your fertility treatment. You got normally about a two-week window and then I started chemo. Um, and again, my, my amazing familiar cancer nurse, um, Mary, who has this gorgeous Irish accent that I won't try to um, try to do today, but she introduced the idea of scalp cooling to me as well for my treatment. So again, I felt like I had people who were thinking about how I would best deal with the treatment. I hadn't heard of scalp cooling and you know, her suggestion was, it's painful, but stick with it, it'll be worth it. And was she right? She was absolutely right. It is so painful. But um, I had a very bad reaction uh, to Maxilon in my first chemo session and they gave me half a lorazepam, which is a wonder drug for pain and, and anxiety. So um, I had a half a lorazepam before each of my chemo sessions, just before my scalp cooling went on. And I kind of just sat in a bit of a stupor for my chemo treatment. So... They, they weren't pleasant, but they were doable. And career is another big thing for young women yes. with breast cancer. You were actually able to keep working? Yeah. So I thought I wouldn't be because you, you think you can't. And certainly my mum didn't, but the kind of chemo she had was the kind of we try to kill you and, and build you back up kind of chemo. So it's very different. Chemo is nothing like it used to be. So I had in my head I'd have to quit my job and I remember calling my boss because I was travelling to Adelaide and Canberra. I was working for a politician at the time and I remember calling him going, this has happened, I'm so sorry, I think I'm going to have to quit my job. And he said, absolutely not. And he went and made some calls and, I mean, this is a nice part about politics that a lot of people don't see behind the scenes, but he went and called 
his opposite number and it all got sorted. My home base got changed to Melbourne so I could have my treatment and when I was well enough I could still travel to Canberra for sitting weeks. So you you were really well supported in the workplace. Amazing. Too. Incredibly well supported. What are some of the side effects that you made it a little bit tough? Um, I think, work? yeah, so I mean the two different types of chemo I had had different side effects. I mean, the obvious side effects is even though you do scalp cooling, you do lose your hair. Um, but I, this was before headscarves were cool, so I'd like to say that um, you know all those women with the headscarves, uh, thank you, everyone, because uh, when you have a big bald patch from scalp cooling, you still kind of don't want to walk around like that. So it was all like headscarves, big earrings, big lippy, drawn on eyebrows. Um, so that's the obvious physical one that people can see, but the ones that people can't see um, often are the, the hot flushes because you go into menopause during it, and I was on Zolidex as well, which is another fertility um, preserver option. Um, and you feel nauseous, obviously. You eat random foods. I was obsessed with the Ellsberg cheese and bread. Don't know why, it just felt good, and juice, loved juice. Um, couldn't drink coffee, couldn't, couldn't drink alcohol, didn't want a bar of any of that, no seafood, no chilli. Um, but then there was the nausea and the fatigue and the fatigue was like this deep fog. I remember walking into work one day with my eyes closed, just going, that's fine, this is fine. It was almost you're floating on this cloud of thick fog. Um, and that was the bit that probably people couldn't really see. So in hindsight, do you think maybe you pushed yourself too hard through the chemo or did it give you a reason to keep going? And, and what would your suggestions with hindsight be yeah. for others how to maybe manage or yeah. combine the two? Um, I think for me it was the best option. So um, it, it, it gave me... A distraction. I think if I had sat at home and been sick, I would have ended up being a depressed mess. Whereas some people I've met, they're like, thank goodness I didn't have to work. If I'd had to work, it would have been awful. So I think for everyone, it's so different. Mm. And I think also I had the experience from that previous job where I had lost everything and having lost the job was probably the worst part of that experience and, and not having a purpose. So keeping that purpose for me I knew with my mental health was the best way to manage so in hindsight no I probably wouldn't have changed it maybe I would have taken a few more days off mm -hmm. um, here and there but I actually think you know it, it it made cancer not the worst thing in the world it made it doable you talked about the stress of losing a job yeah what do you think I mean cancer whichever way you look at it is stressful mm. Is it about taking control? You seem to have taken control yeah. of the situation. Is it about really sort of focusing or putting a mindset to how you're going to take on I think it's process. about focusing on the things that you can control. So there are things that you can't control in life and there are the things you can. And 
if you're feeling like everything is out of control, there's no point in worrying about the things that you can't control. So I couldn't really control the fact that I had cancer and needed treatment. I could control the way I engaged in that treatment, i.e. scalp cooling or the Zolodex to um, help protect your ovaries and all those sorts of things. I could control how I managed my nausea with different drugs or eating at different times. I could control my fatigue through things like exercise. Um, and and the big thing that I could control was um, what my day looked like. And so controlling what my day looked like was probably the best thing I could do for me to hold on to something through that process. Uh, with you being at the certainly the younger end yeah. of women diagnosed with breast cancer, what do you think is the really big difference between a young woman's diagnosis and someone of an older age? I guess the main thing I can probably can compare to is my mum and seeing that. But um, And speaking to other women that you kind of do meet throughout the corridors of hospitals and chemo chairs and that kind of thing, I think there's a big difference. It's not even just young and older. It's perhaps people prior to children and post-children. I think you have a very different relationship with your body um, after you've had kids. Um, I think, so, and also then that fertility piece is probably a pretty pivotal part in that. Um, you know, I, I feel for the, there's the positive of having triple negative breast cancer is you don't have to go on those treatments which turn all your hormones off for five years. So if you do have a, um, a hormone-driven cancer, you, you sit in menopause for five years as well. Like that must be so hard for those women. It's um, the first time I've heard someone put a positive spin on triple negative no, breast well, cancer. Well, I'm not having hot flushes <laughs> at the moment. So let me tell you, it, 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 there are positives with a, with that sort of diagnosis. So, um, you know, you, you kind of, I, I just think it depends on the person. I think it depends on where they're at in their life. It depends on if you didn't have a partner. I had a husband, a loving husband. I was in a great relationship in that sense. So, you know, if you didn't have a partner, that's a lot scarier. Fertility then is an even bigger question on how that all works. So, um, you know, if, maybe if I was 21, gosh, that must be so hard. You, I mean, I, I felt like at 31 I knew a bit more who I was. So... I think for me, yes, it was young. I would have much rather have had my preventative surgery beforehand and not had it. But, you know, if it was going to happen, it happened at a time after I'd, I'd been through a crisis and got through it, so I knew that I could do it. I had a partner um, and a really loving family and friendship group and workplace. So, you know, I could have been 41 and had none of that and it could have been a whole heap harder. BCNA's Helpline provides a free, confidential phone and email service for people diagnosed with breast cancer. BCNA's experienced team will help with your questions and concerns and provide relevant resources and services. Call 1800 500 258 or email contact at bcna.org.au. So you did have the mastectomy. Being that you were young and regardless of you being in a solid relationship, it's still a major part of your body to lose, particularly yeah. A, being young and B, as you were saying, your relationship is different to possibly women who have had children. Yeah. How did you feel about losing your breasts? Well, I was very adamant at the beginning to try and keep my nipples. So these are the weird things that you get obsessed with. <laughs> um, and I had 
had a, quite a fuller chest. Um, now I have what I think are tiny little boobs. <laughs> they're not that small, but they're a lot smaller than they were. So, you know, breasts were part of my identity and I'd always had big boobs. So, you know, big boob ladies were kind of a thing you know you kind of like high five each other when you find a good strapless bra or a dress that you can wear you know it, it we're, we're a little group and we know each other and we're, we're there's a sisterhood of us so there was an element of that of having an identity of being a big-breasted woman um and there was the identity of say having seen early mastectomies without the nipples um my mum chose not to have um a, re a reconstruction so I'd seen what I know what it looks like without one so I'd kind of seen it all and I thought look the roll gold, if I can keep my nipples, that'd be great. But then, of course, when you've got big boobs, if you're having a reconstruction, they don't make them that big because no one wants really big, big, fake boobs. So you couldn't get the size that you had or you didn't want the size that you had? I think it was a bit hard to do the size that I had and I kind of was quite happy with going a bit smaller, to Go be honest. Go on, tell us what size. I was about a 10G and now I'm about a 12C. Yeah. It's kind of perfect. I'm not going to lie. My boobs are amazing now. <laughs> um, so it's, it's not the worst thing that happened for me, the mastectomy. I have perky boobs that I don't need to wear underwire with anymore. I can, uh, yeah, it's Were great. they implants or was it tissue-based? Implants. Yes. So, okay. oh, the best day. Like, the... the the plastic surgeons were a bit brutal. So they told me my boobs were too saggy to have a nipple, uh, keep my nipples, unless I had a breast lift. I said, well, that's what we're doing then. And they went, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so that was a bit of a kick in the guts. But then they said, oh, you don't have enough body fat to have a reconstruction. And I'm like, yay! <laughs> best news ever. So you, you have a love-hate relationship with your plastic surgeons. Um, so I was able to have a breast slip when I had the lump taken out. That healed, had the chemo, got over the chemo, then had the mastectomy, was able to keep my nipples. And what they do first is they um, put a spacer in. Um, so that's quite funny. You come out of your surgery with what my husband and I affectionately nicknamed my breasts as the shriveled footballs because that's what they look like before they start being pumped up. So it was kind of hilarious seeing those. Um, I was like, oh, well, that's a bit different. And then they slowly pump them up. So you go in and get saline put into them, injected. Not scary, yeah. it doesn't hurt. Um, and every time you just see them grow... <laughs> And it was, you know, you're kind of coming out of having had chemo, you know, all your hair's growing back and your boobs are growing again. It's sort of like going through um, puberty in mm. your 30s. It's quite funny. And then you kind of get to a point where you're like, oh, I kind of like this size. Let me sit with these for a bit. And, um, and they were hard as. They were like rocks. Now, I remember spinning my husband in bed and he's like, um, honey, I love you, but do you mind backing <laughs> off a little bit? Because kind of these two rocks are right in his back. Yeah. Um, so I had those for a year prior to having them swapped out for the um, implants, which is what I have now. And look, they're not boobs. They're not the same, but these are a lot softer. Um, I can sleep on my stomach again because I'm a stomach sleeper, which is great. And my husband doesn't ask me to back off when I'm hugging him, so that's, that's pretty good. Was there good. a grieving period, though, for those breasts? Um, I think because I'd had the cancer, I was happy for them to go. Um, I think prior to the cancer, it would have been harder 
I actually think there's something that changes when you're like, you're trying to kill me, bitches. You yeah, can there's go. T-shirts about that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. my boobs tried to kill me. Exactly. Mm. And I also found out that I had some precancerous tissue in the same breast where I'd already had this cancer. So I was like, good decision. Yeah. So, I mean, the things that I grieved initially was losing strength. I'd been quite fit, so I couldn't lift things and I still am not as strong as I used to be. Um, I'd, I was told I might not be able to swim again. But I remember the first swim I went back and I swam a K and did breaststroke. And it, it, it's true, you don't need breasts to do breaststroke. I've proved that. Um, but, you know, being able to do all those things, there's a lot of firsts that you have. Um, so, you know, you grieve things, but you get back there. And it's just slow. You've got to be patient. I do lots of Pilates and... So, and obviously, stuff. exercise has helped you both Huge. mentally and physically. Huge. Yeah. Pilates... Um, and this is the thing, this is again that gap that you know, I was talking about, that gap with fertility information between different hospitals. I think there's also a gap for, um, I was lucky enough to keep working so I could afford those ancillary services such as you know massage or, or um, Pilates or physio, which I did a lot of because I haven't had lymphedema. I had all my nodes removed, so I've been lucky, no lymphedema. And I kind of put that down to getting straight onto it with those things. And I feel... It's, it's really bloody unfair that different women get different health outcomes depending on how much money they're earning or if they can't earn money or th where those services live. aren't... Yeah, where you live. And so that's kind of... I feel lucky but I feel angry for the women who don't have what I had because it's just so unfair. And it can make such a big difference Huge. too to the, to the outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. With BCNA, how has... The information that's both online and on our helpline. What what have you found useful? Um, one of the the things that I found very useful initially was there was a, a fact sheet on how to talk to people about having cancer or having breast cancer. Um, I'm pretty open, so you know I've just talked about my nipples on a podcast. Um, so I'm quite open, but not everyone is as cool with talking about that stuff. And it actually gave me some really good frameworks to be able to speak to people. And normally when I am speaking to people as well, I often go, would you like me to give you some information or not? But like, I, I kind of just check in with people because for a lot of people, cancer is the scariest word in the world and it wasn't for me. So I was so open and so embracing of the whole thing, but you don't want to trigger other people. That's not really my job to and also then deal with their emotions because you know the people who cry when you tell them you have cancer it's like it's going to be okay I'm going <laughs> to be fine it's like I feel like this should be the other way around but that was helpful I think in particular for me yeah so you're now 32 33 33 yeah sorry old it's all right yes. yeah um, how is life for you now? Pretty good. Um, I, I work in um, stakeholder relations. I'm not working in politics anymore. Um, but my new workplace has been just as supportive. I met my new boss when I was still having chemo. Um, and he still was keen to interview for me for a job. Um, I had my interview two weeks after my double mastectomy. I was, may have been a little high on painkillers, but I, apparently I did really well. Um, and I was on a drug trial all of last year and that was the first year I was at that job. So, again, another really lucky experience um, in that sense. Um, is, it, or is it luck or is it about 
trying to do as much research and keeping an open mind and, yeah. and reaching out to places like BCNA that can provide you with information. Is that one of the, the key messages maybe for others to, to really, you've said you really do your homework? Yeah, I think the thing that I know about organisations like BCNA, which is so patient focused and the outcomes for women not um, going through cancer, i.e. how do you live whilst you're having these things and all the work that has been done previously has taken a bit of the bite and a bit of the fear. So I think in a lot of workplaces, the idea of employing someone who had cancer or had been sick previously would have been, oh, that's a bit too risky. But I think a lot of the demystifying work that has been done by organisations like BCNA and normalising um, cancer and normalising breast cancer in a way um, has made all that difference for a woman like me, bang out to just go into an organisation to say, I've got this cancer thing but I'm going to be fine and I've been working all the way through it. So, you know, that doesn't happen on its own. That happens with a whole lot of work that has happened by generations of people prior to me. You had touched on before about to soap especially at that initial stage of diagnosis, that blur, because there is so much information. Mm. And even you being clearly a meticulous person in your, your research and wanting to know, you can, despite the best efforts of whether it's, you know, friends giving you their own anecdotes or oh, my yeah. friend this, my friend that, but even prof medical professionals, yeah. there's a lot of mismatch information, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, a really good example was um, talking about fertility. I felt like I got two very different messages at different stages early on. Um, you know, you don't know whether you'll get your fertility back and they try to give you numbers and, and then afterwards... I've, I've been lucky, my, my cycles have come back. Um, but then information about what you were told earlier on is completely different. And, um, you know, even knowing about what kind of side effects you'll have, some people will say one thing, some people will say the other. Um, so what would your advice there be? Oh, look, I think... You can do as much research as you like. And I don't, I did not do online research. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Because I once Googled double mastectomy in a hope to get some like end results. I saw some awful surgeries photos. So I never Googled again. Um, so I was careful about where I went for the information. So BCNA or you know, other online tools was where I went. Or medical professionals who were friends was often the way. Or people I knew who knew someone who'd had breast cancer. So I spoke to them. Um, or obviously my medical professionals as well. Um, but my advice is get what you need, um, work out where your holes are and decide whether or not you need to lean into them or not because you can't know everything. And I also think there's some bits you don't kind of really need to know. Like I didn't know, need to know the surgical ins and outs of what a mastectomy looks like. I'm very happy not to know about how they do it. That's fine. I'm very cool with that. I'm not great with blood. Um, but what I did want to know is what would they look like afterwards? Like, you know, so it's about picking the bits that you want to know about and not necessarily freaking yourself out because you can really freak yourself out if you do the research. I was When you say I did research, I was very careful about the way I did it. So life is good. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. It's really good. I'm very lucky. There's still that thing, you know, when you say that triple negative, you, you still have that risk of reoccurrence and that, like, that does sit. It sits with you and it's kind of a little, it's a little thing that, I don't know, you know how those little um, 
the angels you have, like, you know, the devil angel and the happy angel. There's sort of, it's not like that, but there's just this little thing that sits there in the background and it, and it sits there in your planning. So, for instance, we've been advised not to start a family until we get to five years post-diagnosis. So that's a thing. That's a bit sad when, you know, it might be in, you know, all my friends are having kids at the moment. That can be hard. Um, but, you know, in the end, you're just really bloody thankful for the amazing care and being here. So, yeah, life's good. Thanks, Dimity, for joining us on this episode of Upfront About Breast Cancer, which was made possible with thanks to Suzanne. You can find more information about issues affecting young women with breast cancer on our website, bcna.org.au, or on our My Journey online tool at myjourney.org.au. The opinions of our guests are welcome, but not necessarily shared by BCNA. If you have any individual concerns, please contact your health professional. And if you like this episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Kelly Curtin. Thanks for being upfront with us.